uh, Martin Luther King um, commented on something that uh, the United Methodist Church did. Now, this I'm, we're not talking about the AME Church. Now, we're talking about the predominantly white United Methodist Church. But they had a what they called a colored uh, jurisdiction, uh, and they decided to break it up, which looks like integration. But it then it meant that uh, the black ministers, the black leaders of that um, uh, group, they no longer had the voice and standing in that denomination that they once had. And Martin Luther King says, um, sometimes segregation as a halfway step to freedom can be a good thing. Yes, I like integration, but I don't want to be integrated out of power. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Douglas Morgan, author of the biography, Louis C. Sheaf, Apostle to Black America. This week, we are discussing Dr. Morgan's upcoming book, although still unpublished, tentatively titled Change Agents, which explores the role of the laity in the formation of regional conferences. So I want to take a quick aside to explain why I'm continuing on this topic of race in the church and will continue to do so for a few more weeks. This week, we're discussing church government. It's a topic that can seem peripheral to the gospel, but really understanding how to organize a diverse group of people under the unity of a single denomination without losing the voice and interest of minority groups is an enormous task. Protecting the interest of minority groups is the gospel. Understanding church government provides us a lesson in leadership for how to interact and participate in society, as well as with fellow believers. By observing our past mistakes, we can also define principles that will make us better leaders for the present. One method that arose within Adventism, not naturally, I might add, but through the insistence, protest, and perseverance of the marginalized Black community, were regional conferences. Regional conferences have been used to preserve the voice of marginalized interest groups by creating substructures within the majority structure. It's the same reason why the United States has a Congressional Black Caucus and a Congressional Hispanic Caucus. It is the means by which those in power can be informed about the needs and issues that may be periphery to majority leaders, but are unique and important to minority communities. So we continue this week detailing how the Adventist Church developed a system of representation for the African-American community within the majority structure, beginning with the formation of regional conferences in 1943. This system is unique to Adventism, since at this very moment in history, other churches were splitting across racial lines, rather than developing a system that could empower minority groups within a single denomination. For that alone, this is a very interesting case study to follow. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is Advent Next. Well, we were talking before about a lot of different events, and we were moving back and forth chronologically. And so I thought that it might be good to just to um, make a few observations on why I see these events as uh, significant. And it really was a 15-year period there in uh, Washington, D.C., from about 1901 to 1916, a lot of zigzag back and forth. But I think it's important because it did set kind of a template for race relations in the Adventist church, particularly coming as it did at the point of uh, reorganization. The reorganization that began in earnest in 1901 is still being implemented. And then in 1903, the General Conference moves to uh, Washington, D.C. Now, unfortunately, the outcome um, of that template, if you will, is that it is uh, skewed toward segregation and injustice in the church, that accommodation to the wider culture, the trends that we were uh, talking about last time. But at the same time, the people that uh, were more farsighted, we could say more deeply committed to the gospel, uh, they still are part of our history. I think we can gain inspiration from that, even though they didn't win out in the moment. 
So that's one thing. The other thing, though, is that uh, part of the uh, of the template was not um, just this simple and absolute crushing of every aspiration and and uh, uh, aspect of, of of what the African American work was trying to do. But there is this sort of pattern of of partial progress. What I mean is that um, we were talking uh, before about how uh, Louis Schieff and his People's Church uh, went independent in 1907, and then now the First Church almost went with them, and that was 20% of the uh, black uh, membership, and it could have been more. Well, um, that did prompt a lot of discussion, and uh, the General Conference decided, well, you know, uh, back in 1901, Sheaf suggested that there be a department, just as there was being a department set up to uh, reach the um, European language immigrants, uh, Scandinavian languages and German especially, uh, was very um, a major part of the church's work, heavy immigration at that time. Let's set up a department to focus on uh, the black work. And it, it was not um, accepted at that time. But in 1909, then, in the wake of that 1907 blow-up, I guess you could say, um, several of the other, the loyal, we could call them the loyal black ministers, petitioned the General Conference, and they went ahead and set up this department. Now, uh, they put a white man in charge of the Negro Department, as they called it. Um, But then, which, you know... uh, I don't say that to say that it was it was worthless, but less than ideal, certainly. Uh, but then after the second go-round and, and sort of the final uh, parting of the ways that we also talked about, uh, about 1916, then um, the Black Adventist ministers uh, say, well, we really think that this would work better if one of our own were put in charge of the work. And so at the next general conference uh, session, which had been scheduled for 1917, but because of the war, they put it off until 1918. And uh, W.H. Green, William Hawkins Green, was uh, someone who had been uh, converted to Adventism at Chief's meetings in 1902. He was a lawyer, a very successful lawyer, uh, but he is placed at the head of this North American uh, Negro Department. And it, it was really sensed as kind of a, well, definitely a, a uh, an advance and a new start. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, uh, those are just some of the ways I think that what we were talking about previously have a major significance for us uh, today and an impact on the whole history uh, of the church. So that, that, that the pattern there, I guess, uh, to tie that point off, is that we have sort of an oscillation, but partial progress. Uh, You know, unfortunate uh, conformity to uh, uh, racial injustice and and, and segregation in the church, but then um, the very fact that some people do uh, protest it and even leave prompts the leadership to say, hey, we better do something to help keep those who are loyal to remain and also to enhance the evangelistic work uh, reaching uh, uh, the black population. Wow. Uh, Wow. And so kind of moving forward a little bit through time. Also, I don't know, when you were doing your your study on Louis C. Sheaf, how did, did... and we talked a little bit about this yesterday, but how did he end his life? Did he did, did, did he stay an Adventist lifelong, or did he at some point just become a Seventh-day Baptist? Right, right. No, um, he identified in his church there in Washington, uh, to which he, re- he returned in 1917, uh, independent Adventist again. And uh, Seventh-day Adventist, they called themselves that for about five or six years and then um, it's, it, it seems that he has decided at that point that it's not really even worthwhile to try to claim the name Seventh-day Adventist when we're not part of the organization. And so in 1926, uh, he and his congregation uh, join the Seventh-day Baptists, which, uh, you know, the Baptist polity is congregational, uh, and so it's not a tight 
um, hierarchy at all. And so I think that was uh, compatible with, with his, uh, his views. And it's what he had been used to before as a Baptist. Um, and so that's how he, he ended up. Uh, just one interesting side note. Uh, there was a, a major uh, figure who really was the founder of uh, European Adventism named uh, uh, L.R. Conradi, Louis, Ludwig R. Conradi, who also uh, parted ways with the organization uh, about this time. Uh, and uh, so uh, uh, Conradi is being interviewed, this is in New Jersey, at the, uh, the uh, Seventh-day Baptist headquarters, not being interviewed, but uh, there was a committee there that is considering his ordination as a Seventh-day Baptist. And uh, uh, the, the records say that Sheaf was the first one to, to second the motion <laughs> that, uh, that Brother Conradi be accepted as Seventh-day Baptist. Anyway, uh, just an aside uh, about another significant figure in, in Adventist history that unfortunately ended up, you know, uh, parting ways. It seems to me, and, and I don't know if this is part of your research too, it seems to me because there was a push for a sense of like, how do we get resources to help our communities? Congregational churches tend to be more that, you know, you can keep your local tithe dollars, you're not having to place them into funds in which you're not going to gain access to the, whatever the structures are that they're building. And so it kind of seems like, you know, that was probably part of the issue as well, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. And it it makes a lot of sense. Uh, But... Number one, we could just say, of course, that's not the Seventh-day Adventist system. But number two, it was particularly sensitive uh, at that point uh, because of the Kellogg crisis and the sense. In fact, A.G. Daniels says at one point, all right, now what Kellogg has decided to do is to sort of pick us off one congregation at a time. And so I guess what I'm saying is it, it was not a moment in which the leadership could be flexible and say, all right, well, we'll come up with some kind of arrangement where officially the conference still administers it, but we'll give you a lot of autonomy, something like that. It, they just were not in a mood to compromise somehow, you know, uh, with uh, that uh, organizational system uh, at, that, at that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So moving forward in time, I mean, you, you've done another really... Um comprehensive work looking at, or you're in the middle of it, right? Uh, looking at the committee that formed um, in order to create regional conferences. Can you give us a little background? How did you get into this? And maybe give us a little insights into some of those stories there. Well, this also grew out of research that was uh, commissioned by uh, the DuPont Park Church, in, in this case, the, the, the first church in Washington, had me uh, do a history of their congregation. And then um, DuPont Park decided that they would uh, like me to do similarly. And that is the uh, congregation that was originally called Ephesus. They were the ones who um, decided, all right, Sheaf and the People's Church, they're going off their own way. And they loved Sheaf, they respected him. They wanted so badly to keep him in the fold, but they weren't willing to follow him that way. They, they really felt it was crucial to, to stay with uh, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist uh, church and all that it, that it stood for. And so um, that congregation then became a very strong congregation, and one that was—the um, the, the membership had many— uh, well-educated uh, educators, because that was one of the main uh, professions uh, that uh, was a uh, considerable degree of openness to black people in Washington, D.C. at that time, government uh, uh, bureaucrats, for lack of a better term, but, but significant positions uh, in the government. And so uh, they, uh, as I said, uh, became a strong congregation in the 20s and uh, 30s. And they fostered a culture of loyalty, number one, loyalty to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but also because they are thinking, intelligent people who see what's going on in society, 
they produce uh, a, a group of people who, when a crisis point came, and we can sort of trace that uh, later, uh, uh, the details, but in 1943, jumping ahead uh, 20, 25 years, um, they were in a position, along with some of the first church uh, members there in Washington, D.C., to say, all right, we are going to uh, protest this. And uh, the book that I have um, basically completed, completed uh, it looks good for a publisher, but <laughs> the, nothing has been signed yet, so I better not uh, say anything um, on that uh, at, this, uh, at this moment. But I, I'm tentatively calling it Change Agents, uh, simply calling it that. And uh, a look at how this committee, which obviously African-American, Number two, they were laity uh, at a time when the laity had about as little voice in uh, the uh, decision-making, the governance of the, uh, of the denomination as any point in our history. And number three, most of them were women. In fact, the, the driving um, force that, uh, the, in propelling the, for the main organizers, the main spark plugs, really were the women. There was a, a man who, who led it, and he was very effective and competent, but uh, the driving force really in this uh, were women. So I just thought it's so interesting that um, a group uh, like this at, at the intersection of these three, uh, you know, crossing lines of, of uh, disadvantage, I guess you could say, uh, were able to affect uh, change. Uh, now, I suppose we we would need to step back and say, how did it? How did we get to that crisis point? Right uh, in 1943. I, yeah. So yeah, can we step back a little bit? Because I'm curious. Um, you know, I think in 1929 there was the first. Well, not the first. Probably is it the first? Correct me. So in 1929, they, they wanted to push for colored conferences, and that and they were denied. Right, and so. If you can bring us maybe from that point and then maybe some fallout, and then how did that build up to the yeah, 1940s? Yeah. You know, I think one way to, to, to think about this is to imagine that you are a pastor, you're a successful pastor. In fact, you're pastor of uh, the largest church in the conference. And not only that, you've been evangelizing uh, and, and, you know, just preaching your heart out, so to speak, for the cause for about 25 years, and you've planted about half a dozen other churches. So that collectively, um, it is churches that, that you have uh, been the, the, the primary leader in terms of, of, of starting and planting and so forth and leading. Uh, they make up about uh, at least a third, maybe 40% of, of the conference membership. You have a voice. You do have a voice. You're a member of the conference committee. And remember, in the conference system, that is the decisive point. The, the, the conference has complete authority over personnel and funds. So you have a voice, but you will never be president. Well, it's not so much that you want the office, but you have such big plans for how you can make the work even more effective and bring the um, benefits of Adventism in terms of health care and education, uh, make them available for your people. But you can't really um, have the influence through the system that would make that possible. So that was the situation of, of James K. Humphrey in New York City. He was a pastor of First Harlem Church. And by the way, the, the, the book on this is uh, by um, R. Clifford Jones, who uh, until a few years ago, I think, was a dean or an associate dean at the seminary. He's now president of the uh, Lake Region Conference. It's simply called James K. Humphrey and the United Sabbath-day Adventists. Uh, and so that um, is to illustrate why a pastor like Humphrey and many others who were the most uh, progressive, the most um, mm, uh, desirous of change and, and making things uh, move forward, 
four of the African-American work believed that the separate conferences would be better because that would mean then that the tithe money would come in to uh, the conference where they're able to make the decisions about how it can be best be used to advance the cause in that area. Now, it's, it's very interesting. On, on the one hand, uh, W.A. Spicer, who was president of the General Conference from 1922 to 1930, and even before that, he had been the secretary. And he thought that he, he, he agreed. So remember the, those dates that I just gave you, 22 to 30. He's the president of the conference, a general conference. But um, there was division. Number one, a lot of the white union conference and local conference presidents were against it. And there were, uh, there was diversity of viewpoints expressed among the black ministers. And, and Spicer says, well, they were divided on it. And so, referring to the black ministers, and he says that's one reason why it didn't happen. They, actually, 1921 was kind of a first push for it. Uh, but you're right that 29, uh, we'll just come back to that in a minute. But, um, uh, but I think what Spicer didn't realize was that many of the black ministers uh, were not in favor of this because if they spoke out for it, they might face retribution from their white administrators at the conference and union conference levels who didn't want that. Well, anyway, um, coming forward to 1929, then uh, there, there is that that is really the most concentrated push for it. And to you know to make a uh, interesting story of short, uh, in the general conference session of 1930, the decision was no, uh, we will not uh, go this way. And al although they didn't put this in the actual minutes. Uh, the, the black leaders were told, don't bring this up again. It's settled. Ne you know, we're not going to do it. Um, now, it's interesting that, 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 that Humphrey and his church had parted ways uh, with uh, the conference in 1929. Um, but, uh, and you might think, well, that would have um, influenced the, the general conference to maybe favor that plan more. If, and in, within a few years, it may have been a factor. But at that point, they took a firm line on it. And so uh, now they, they put in another a plan, which was to um, have within the union conference structure uh, a committee to oversee the black work. However, again, the white administrators had complete control of those. There would be a, a lead black minister. If there were enough black Adventists in a, in a conference, then one of them would be designated as the head of a, of a committee, but he wouldn't be the chair. The conference president would be the chair. Same thing at the union level. But that was something, uh, but uh, it really did not uh, prove uh, to be very effective, especially outside the South, where because of the uh, great migration of African Americans outside the South, now into the cities of the North and the Midwest and even the Far West. We're getting a lot more Adventists, uh, you know, black Adventists outside of the South. And so th this sort of partial um, measure that came out of 1930 became more, uh, more and more ineffective or, or you just didn't meet the changing uh, situation. So um, that's part of it that, that, that's uh, building up uh, the, the, what we might call the representation, the push for representation. Uh, and uh, uh, I believe you said that you, you uh, have a program with Dr. Calvin Rock. Um, it, yeah, his book, Protest and Progress, is, is the best in terms of talking about that, that push uh, from uh, of the ministers for representation. And he also talks, but he, he, uh, here's where I'm hoping, and, and actually with his help, not only through the book, but also an interview, but 
where I'm emphasizing it a little more is the role of the laity. Um, and, uh, there, and, and there is another side, uh, again, which he mentioned, but maybe I go into a bit more detail, and that is that with regard to the issue of access to education, uh, especially, but, and health care, the thing that happens is that um, between that more hopeful moment that we talked about uh, a few minutes ago in 1918 and 1943, things get worse in the Adventist church. It's not a, a situation of, well, you know, there's sort of a gradual improvement, but they get worse. And we can give some examples, uh, you know, as needed. But the other thing to keep in mind is that in American society, things are getting slightly better. Well, they're significantly better, but it's a long, slow turn. In other words, it's a, it, it, it's, it's, pre-Martin Luther King, uh, you know, and Malcolm X and all the, the, the 60s. It's before that, before the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act and all of that. But nonetheless, you did have the Franklin D. Roosevelt administration, for example, coming in uh, in 1933. And, uh, of course, his wife was a much stronger advocate for civil rights than, than he was personally. But um, it was really for the first time since the end of Reconstruction that a presidential administration was perceived as more on the side of African Americans, and it was at least making some significant measures. And uh, so that's just one example of how things are getting a little bit better in society. But the Adventist church um, is getting worse in terms of the patterns of, of, of segregation. Uh, specifically with regard to the schools and, uh, and the hospitals. Uh, one example with the schools came at uh, Emmanuel Missionary College, the predecessor of a Andrews in terms of, of the undergraduate program. And um, they uh, instituted a more segregated policy in the late 1930s than they had even had before. That uh, it was definitely the case that they instituted separate seating in the dining hall. It's a little more controverted whether it, that was implemented in the dormitory worships and so forth. But um, th there's definitely a going uh, backwards there. Uh, and also, with the, one thing that, that really tr deeply troubled Elder G.E. Peters, who was the head of the North American Negro Department at, at, at uh, this um, point. Well, another man named Peterson, F.L. Peterson, was from about 30 to 38, and then Elder Peters takes over. Um, there are many uh, black young people who want nurses' training, and they just, it's, it's not that, like it's an absolute bar, but it's, a, it's very difficult and, you know, it's like there are quotas. We only want so many. And then as another pattern of regression, at Loma Linda, um, the uh, cousin, I believe it was, of, of, of Eva B. Dykes, who was still, by the way, she was one of those on this committee uh, in Washington, D.C. She hadn't gone to Oakwood yet. Um, but her cousin, or her niece it might have been, received a rejection letter. And it, and it came right out and said, well, we've had trouble... Um, the trouble being that some of the hospitals that we want to have the nurse, nursing students do their, what do they call it, practicums, whatever, there, we've had trouble with the colored students, the, the way they're treated there in the past, so we can't accept, we're not accepting you. Again, it, it, it was not that, I mean, Loma Linda had trained many physicians, nurses, uh, you know, it wasn't as if it had been historically closed to African-Americans, but now there is this, um, yeah, you know, this backslide <laughs> is one way of, 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 of Regression, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. What, what were the dates that this was happening? What, what were the dates? Well, for? the situation at Emmanuel Missionary College was 1938 uh, and 39 and... Um, I mean, that's, that's when it was most heated and most publicized. The Loma Linda, uh, I think that was 41, 
Uh, but but that example from Loma Linda is part of a larger pattern. Uh, I there's a letter in particular that a G. E. Peters is writing to to the General Conference um, president, I believe, or, or or one of the vice presidents, and he says, "This just makes my heart weep." He says, "Here are these dedicated." Seventh-day Adventist young people, they want to get training, but they have to go out to the world, as he put it, you know? Uh, and he just, he's in anguish over this. And again, it, that is something that they had been, you know, working on, batting back and forth, but it wasn't getting better. In fact, it seemed to be getting worse uh, in, in the early 1940s. Wow. So all of this was happening. All of these tensions were rising after 18, sorry, uh, 1929 up until 43. You said, and, and maybe uh, if you could just reiterate this part, you said that there was a, some type of concession that happened, but it wasn't enough. What was that concession? Because basically they said, don't bring this up again, but then they gave them something. Okay. All right. So um, they said that in the North, if the membership now, we have to think to scale now, uh, the total membership is, uh, of our churches was much lesser then. But uh, they said, in a union, if you get to the point of having uh, 500 members who are, who are members of black churches, then uh, you need to appoint a, a union secretary, uh, or, I mean, we call him director today, but leader, uh, of of the black work in that department, somebody who's going to sort of oversee it, foster it, advocate for it. Um, but what they were doing was that um, they were very half-hearted. I mean, basically, you're talking about a Columbia Union, Atlantic, and Lake would be the key ones. Um, uh, Pacific as well, and so it varies from place to place, but basically they're half-hearted and halting about this. For example, uh, they might finally belatedly put someone into that role, but uh, they don't give it, it's not a, they don't give him an office, you know, in headquarters. He, they, and they still expect him to pastor the church. So it's like more work, same pay. Um, and the other thing that is very remarkable uh, to me, and that is that there were there uh, among the, the the black Adventists, they were saying, "Look, the money is not being handled fairly," and it turns out they were absolutely right, especially in these uh, areas outside the, the South, because uh, at the time of 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 the of the of the crisis that leads up to the formation of of, of the separate conferences. Elder McElhaney, J.L. McElhaney, president of the General Conference, he says, all right, I want a study done. I want to get at the truth to this. And so he, the, the auditor of the General Conference collects the statistics. And sure enough, if you calculate, um, and, and he's got the tables are, 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 you know, right there. They're in the archives. Um, in a, a conference, let's say the Illinois Conference, for example, because you had a very large church in Chicago and several other black churches in Chicago, Shiloh Church, and several others as well. But if you look at the tithe that they're generating, um, as opposed to the amount of the tithe that is being spent for salaries and expenses of black workers for the black work, it's like, in some cases, it's more than double that they're putting in, <laughs> uh, you know. And so um, th there, there was a real—that's uh, th part of, of, of the dysfunction. Um, it was why I say that this sort of half-hearted thing, or this partial uh, um, measure that had been uh, approved in 1930 really was, number one, is only being— reluctantly and partially implemented. Number two, it really was not up to handling the ramifications of, of the changing situation where before you, people tended to think of, of uh, the black work as the South, the Southern work, but that is changing rapidly. Um, yeah, so um, 
Yeah. Yeah, especially since there's this mi- huge migration that's coming in uh, to the northern cities after World War One, uh, and so now the demographic is changing, and we need to be probably mobilizing in urban era- areas much more. So, okay, we're we're getting into this period right before where the committees are starting. You're saying that the laity really had uh, a big part in pulling this off. Maybe you can talk a little right. bit about that. Right, yeah. Well, probably then we should mention the, 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 the famous incident that probably most of our listeners have, have heard about, and that is in 1943, um, Lucy Byard, African-American woman, elderly woman, uh, from New York City, uh, the the treatment uh, or the admission to Washington Sanitarium, as it was called then, Sanitarium Hospital, was arranged in advance. But when she and her husband arrived, then they were told, "Well, we can't accept you on account of race. It's against the Maryland law, and so forth." And they said, "We think you should go to the Freedmen's Hospital." Uh, in Washington, D.C. And um, it was really that rejection. It, it's true that she did die a month later. So that she was, she needed care, but it wasn't like an acute emergency, and they just sort of threw her out on the street. But even before she passed away, that, that rejection, that here she had come, she wanted to go to the sanitarium specifically because she was a deeply dedicated Seventh-day Adventist. She wanted the social environment of Adventism and Adventist health principles, you know, not just your run-of-the-mill hospital. That's, that's why she wanted to be. And, and then um, there was a, a physician by the name of, of uh, J. Mark Cox, a young Adventist physician who was on duty at Friedman's Hospital when they got a phone call and then a, a note later from our Washington San about here, we're sending this lady to you. But Cox says that it spread like wildfire at Freedman's, that the Adventists would not accept one of their own. And he says, let's see if I can get the words. I was forced to, to, to hear uh, uh, God's cause, um, you know, uh, uh, defamed. I mean, actually, the words are much uh, better than that. Uh, in front of the world, because all of a sudden, um, uh, everybody at Friedman's Hospital has heard the news that the Adventists wouldn't even take a one of their own just because she was a person of color. And so, I mean, <laughs> wow, that's really effective evangelism, isn't it? <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're wanting to, 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 to win people. And so he, you know, he really despaired over that. But the, but the larger thing is that even be, that even before, yeah, I mean, she, actually, I said that to try to show why it was actually not her death, although it, that came into it. But the 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 rejection itself that sparked this committee. Now, one other thing that happened uh, was that uh, about three weeks after she was turned away, and uh, there was awareness now that there's a lot of discontent, and the General Conference, uh, Elder Peters reports this to the General Conference officers. Uh, W.G. Turner, who was the vice president for North America, um, said, well, I'm going to go down, and I'm going to preach at Ephesus, as it was called then, and I'm going to, uh, you know, I, he's, I've, he, he was from Australia, uh, in the South Pacific, and he thought, well, I know, I've worked with, with uh, people of color, I, I know how to handle this situation. And uh, the, the sort of the oral tradition uh, is that, uh, that Peters warned him, he said, don't do it, don't try it. Um, but uh, uh, he went anyway, and it really backfired, because he, 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 he used First Peter, that, uh, uh, think it not strange, when fire, fiery trials have come upon you, and you just you need to submit and so forth, and those were just not the words that <laughs> were appropriate for that time. Well, so what was his, okay? What was his nationality, and what was he trying to accomplish at this point? Like he was just trying to com- accomplish some submission, or yeah, th- this was after the news had spread about Lucy Byard's re- the refusal of treatment. And so the general conference officers are 
aware that there is this discontent. And uh, I would also just just add that uh, there is, the, the reason we went through all, all of the, the changing trends a few minutes ago is to say that, that there's a buildup here. It's not just one incident, but this is like, you know, uh, the, the flashpoint, the tipping point, whatever. But um, Turner, who is a, he's vice president of the General Conference for North America, but he's from Australia. He's only been in the U.S. for a couple of years. I, I'm not sure. I, I'd like to research sometime why he was made the North American uh, president or vice president for North America. But anyway, um, he was overconfident. He thought that he could go down there and preach a sermon. You see... Um, Good luck. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and so it came across very condescending. And it was basically like, yes, you are suffering trials, but that's what we as Christians must go through. Be patient. We'll take care of things. And um, one of the uh, most respected uh, leaders of the congregation, a man named uh, James C. Montgomery, uh, who was uh, a Sabbath school teacher, an elder, but also a musician, and his usual role was uh, to, to lead congregational music. He had a violin he would use in doing that. He sat at the front. Uh, and when the sermon was over, even before the, the pastor had an opportunity to come up and say, you know, now we'll sing the closing hymn or whatever, uh, Montgomery stands up, he puts the, the violin on his pew, and he says, <laughs> no, uh, I think, you know, the, the, the text was, think it not strange, brethren, from First Peter. Montgomery says, I think it's very strange that I have children that can't go to Washington uh, um, Missionary College as it was going there. I think it's very strange, da da da. And um, no, uh, if you say servants uh, obey your masters as in we obey the general conference, no, <laughs> I'm not accepting. Now, I want to say that this man, uh, he was probably in his 50s. He was not a rabble rouser. He had been. Um, you know, serving the church in every capacity imaginable, uh, helping with evangelism, but it had just become too much. And so then he and then several others, and I think what I just said about Montgomery really characterizes uh, these people. They, uh, they were totally dedicated to Adventism. They were in the, they, uh, Sabbath school teaching, um, in-gathering, harvest in-gathering. I don't know whether <laughs> that has to be explained these days. But anyway, um, uh, totally loyal, evangel you know, supporting evangelism uh, completely. And they now say, that they don't say that, um, all right, if you don't change church, we're leaving. I think that's important. But they did confront the church with its racial sins. And they formed a committee that night, that very night. And um, I have to hand it to McElhaney, the general conference president. Uh, probably Elder Peter's uh, mediation um, was uh, useful. But McElhaney met with this group that called themselves the Committee for the Advancement of the Worldwide Work Among Colored Seventh-day Adventists the very next day. Uh, and he listened to them. And they, they organ then they organize very effectively. They send letters out, phone calls to try to organize a national network. And to some degree, uh, uh, there's evidence of, uh, uh, that has survived archivally of some of these chapters forming. And there's probably more that, you know, the, the, the paperwork has just been uh, lost. And they demanded change on every one of those problems that I, that I talked about earlier, a very comprehensive and very um, respectful but confrontive. In other words, they, they did not uh, soften things at all. But the question about the laity uh, comes in because they have no standing. McElhaney uh, in the church organization. McElhaney did listen to them, but it would later become clear that he, he was only willing to listen to them as individual lay people. He did not recognize them 
as an organization. And so they would write letters saying, all right, you said you would do this and this and this. And he wrote back, says, well, okay, we got it. Um, and indeed, at the fall council, the annual council of 43, they then agreed to have this meeting in the spring, just before the spring council of 1944, to really look at all these problems. So uh, I guess, uh, in a nutshell, this lay committee lit the fire. They, in a sense, um, brought the pressure to bear, even though they had no uh, official standing. And they prepared a document called Shall the Four Freedoms Survive in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? This alludes to... uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's famous Four Freedom Speech in 1941. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. These were the reasons why, you know, he's trying to rally the nation uh, to uh, support Britain uh, uh, to stop uh, Nazism in, in Europe. So w- the reason is we want to defend these freedoms. So they say, shall the four freedoms uh, survive in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Uh, a couple of the, the, the leader, Joseph Dodson, and another man go to this meeting in Chicago, and they try to get admission to the meeting, this special committee that's been called, and uh, Michael Haney says, well, uh, we're gonna ha- we would have to uh, disband uh, the, the, the General Conference Committee and, uh, or disband this meeting, then call the General Conference Committee and consider this. Basically, he was saying, no, we don't want you here. But they did manage to get their pamphlet distributed. Uh, and so, um, yeah. Now, they did not ask for regional conferences. Okay. Uh, Before you get into this, yes, I have a yes. question a little sure, bit about... Sure, sure, sure. Um, so how did the war play into this? Because, you know, America has, has now got into this war. It's 43, so it's towards the end of the war. Are these people who have maybe served time and then come back and now they're just more, you know, ready to fight in their own country as far as like, or, or how did that play into this at all? Yeah, um, th- th- these were not uh, people who, 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 who personally, um, you know, for various reasons of status and age and so forth, uh, had gone into the military. But I think you're right on target in terms of this atmosphere in which we are all being called upon the, the total citizenry, as well as, as, as the military now, uh, to uh, defend uh, freedom. And so, you know, uh, how can you then not practice it at home? I mean, you know, that was the case made in the society at large. And so they bring it to the church. But there's one other thing that I should, should bring in as well that I think um, uh, brings the context even closer home, and that is in 1941... Now, this is before uh, the U.S. actually got into the war, but their, their, their uh, armaments are being manufactured now to support uh, the Allies. Uh, an African-American leader by the name of A. Philip Randolph um, organized what he called the March on Washington movement, and he went to the president and said, we are going to bring hundreds of thousands of black people to Washington, D.C., uh, to protest uh, racial discrimination, uh, FDR says, all right, well, how about this? If I sign an executive order that calls for an end to segregation in defense industries, uh, and, and Randall said, all right, we'll call it off. But that remained a lever. Actually, the famous March on Washington 20 years later was still part of the same uh, organization. Uh, it's just prior to that they had used it as leverage and then called it off. But anyway, um, so that that that's that is that is also part of the changing situation uh, on a in a, from another angle now that um, there actually is this incremental movement toward freedom in America, and we got a president <laughs> who is rallying us to the four freedoms. Well, can we even live up to that? Uh, that's what the title is is alluding to. They, uh, in this document, they call uh, for a complete end to racial discrimination. 
uh, for the employment of black uh, people in schools, hospitals, conference offices, uh, publishing houses, wherever, uh, acceptance uh, on a non-discriminatory basis, you know, to, to study. But they also call for empowerment of, of the black work and to, uh, you know, keep, uh, uh, there was Oakwood, but also they had a fledgling hospital in, in Nashville called Riverside that um, needed more support. And so they're asking for racial justice and equality across the board. Um, they, the, the laity is not so strong for regional conferences as the ministers. In fact, some are a little skeptical. They think, well, you know, maybe some of these guys, they just want a desk job. They want status. Uh, plus, and probably even more importantly, probably I should have said this first, from the, from the same reason that we find them uh, uh, difficult uh, today, uh, many find them, you know, embarrassing. I mean, is this not a step toward segregation? Is, is this not a denial of, of the principles uh, of our faith? But uh, at the meeting then in Chicago, the way McElhaney set it up, he says, well, you've got three choices. We maintain the status quo, or number two, we take um, that uh, union secretary measure that I talked about earlier, that halfway uh, solution. We, put, we, we, we make sure that's implemented fully. We push that forward. Or uh, we explore the conference, separate conference idea. And so um, they, nobody wanted to, to say that they were, they were pushing for it. McElhaney did not want to say he was dictating it. And G.E. Peters, uh, who very much wanted it, but he didn't want to be in a position because, remember, they, they – they still remember from 1930. Don't talk about it even. Uh, so, uh, but but they kind of maneuvered, uh, and uh, 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 there was a Sunday morning. Uh, the, 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 the opening meeting was a Saturday night, but it was a, a Sunday morning when they uh, were. It was the major part of this of this meeting, and uh, uh, McElhaney is sick in bed doesn't want to get out of his, uh, he doesn't want to chair the meeting. And Peter's just, he comes right into his, uh, his, his hotel room and said, <laughs> Elder McElhaney, if you don't go down there, you're never going to be able to face the black uh, workers again, and I sure won't. <laughs> so uh, they went down there, and they, they made speeches that, again, were not saying, let's have the, re the regional conferences. But... They opened the door to it, to it, and they sort of nudged the argument in a way that made it clear that, that they would find that acceptable. And once they did that, then it's, even some of the ministers were not sure, and some speeches were made against, again, on this, for the same reasons that we talked about, uh, that the lady, some lady objected. But once McElhaney and Peters both made these implicitly favorable speeches, then uh, it, it uh, you know, it, everybody was for it all of a sudden, and uh, it, it, was, it was decided. Um, so I have a question about that. And I know that, so, so a lot of times people look at this part of history and they say, you know, this was a, a terrible moment. It, it showed segregation. We wanted... Uh, the African-American community wanted integration. Then there's another side that says, well, this was probably the best outcome that could have happened because now we're having uh, an entire you know, conference that's dedicated specifically to uh, looking at uh, the black communities and, right. and we're also gaining more employment right. uh, for black leaders. So, I mean, what was this moment in history? Was this a step backwards? <laughs> was this a step forward? What was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Well... Uh, I'll start the answer this way by saying that the large majority of the, of, of the black workers and lay people uh, who had been skeptical, somewhat opposed, but once that was voted, large, large majority embraced it. And there 
uh, I'm, I'm going to make an aside right now, but I hope to come quickly back on track. But the, the aside is that in the Columbia Union, uh, now, I, I, I should also say that it, it didn't mandate regional conferences, but it, 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 um, it, it encouraged a regional, con- I mean, excuse me, union conferences where there was a significant black membership to do that. Columbia Union was one and they were on board, but then there was a pullback. Uh, and petitions, telegrams flooded into the general conference on the part of the very, some of the very people who had, uh, the black people now uh, I'm speaking of, who had not been enthused about uh, the separate conferences and were concerned that for some of the very reasons that, that, that you just mentioned. But now that it had uh, been sort of put on the table and accepted, they begin to see the possibilities. Now, I have a, a couple of illustrations uh, which may not entirely answer your question, but I think they're helpful. And remember back to James K. Humphrey and all that he was trying to do, and, and he was thwarted. Well, um, there was a project that had been talked about for years. Well, going back to the chief, the Washington, D.C. crisis, education. We need a school in the north, or sometimes it's called a school in the east. Um, Maybe not a four-year college, but at least what they would call a training institute, something that gave you post-secondary training of some kind, as well as a good, strong secondary school, that you didn't have to send your child hundreds of miles away, uh, and, uh, you know, things might not be good uh, in many ways in uh, Baltimore or Washington or Philadelphia or New York, but you don't want to (laughs) go... to the segregated South, really, particularly. So they're bat- battling that back and forth, and promises are made, and then there's just no follow-through for 25 years. The Allegheny Conference forms, at, at that point, they're, later it'd be Allegheny East and Allegheny West, but at that point it's just Allegheny in the Columbia Union, and a man named John H. Wagner was made president of the... Uh, Allegheny Conference. And he says to the General Conference, all right, we'll do it. Can we do it? In other words, it wouldn't just be an Allegheny Conference institution, but we will take care of of funding it, getting it going. Within one year after the conference started, Pine Forge Institute, it was called then, was up and running Again, this was the thing that the church at large had not been able to do for 25, 30 years. Now, the, uh, you know, it, it's Pine Forge Academy now, uh, but the vision then was that uh, it would be a place for training beyond high school. But pretty soon then the question, uh, the integration moves forward. All right, so... Uh, a separate black college in the north no longer becomes feasible. But I just think it's very significant that uh, Wagner, who is an extraordinarily effective leader and a powerful evangelist, with the conference, with the Allegheny Conference, he was uh, able to to get that done. Um, a couple of other examples, if you like, uh, and here I ha- have to uh, credit... Um, Samuel London, Dr. Samuel London, and his book, Seventh-day Adventists and the Civil Rights Movement. Um, although uh, I also heard, even before the book came out, I heard uh, uh, Warren S. Banfield tell this story. Warren S. Banfield was uh, a black minister in Tampa, Florida. And in uh, 1957, he was elected uh, to be president of the local chapter of the NAACP. Now, you know, from today's perspective, the NAACP is kind of an old-school, sort of moderate. You know, it's, it's, it, we don't think of it as anything radical. But f- for a black minister, a black Seventh-day Adventist minister, to take that position, and there was a lot of publicity because now we are getting into what is typically called the civil rights movement. And there are, uh, like, uh, demonstrations to integrate uh, beaches, this is, again, Tampa, Florida. Uh, and Banfield, SDA pastor, is in the news leading out all this stuff. Uh, 
And so the white Adventists start writing the General Conference and saying, look at this Banfield. He's hurting our evangelism because from their standpoint, you know, the, the, the church is now being connected with, you know, subversives and radicals and so forth. And of course, that, they don't come right out maybe and say the, the, the racial aspect, but <laughs> that's their real concern. So, okay, Figure, the General Conference president, is getting all these letters. Well, so uh, following the system, Figure collects the letters, and he sends them. This also happens to be John H. Wagner, who is now president of the South Atlantic Conference. He sends them to Wagner and says, uh, look at all these complaints. Um, do something about this. Take care of this problem with this young man at Banfield. And so what uh, Wagner did is he took the same bundle, he added his own note, sent it to Banfield, and, and Wagner's note said, keep up the good work. Now that could, you know, if, if it hadn't been for the Black Conference, that could never have happened. And uh, London also gives some excellent examples from the South Central Conference of things that were done in connection with uh, the, the Martin Luther King's Poor People's March on Washington and so forth. Again, that, you know, it just would not have been possible uh, uh, without the black conferences. So, I mean, in addition, in addition to the general point of empowerment over the work, the cause for African Americans, I think those are some examples that to me show how this, uh, this was advantageous, um, arguably. Uh, you know, that's, that, that's one way of uh, looking at it. Um, yeah. Actually, I also think about there, uh, uh, Martin Luther King um, commented on something that uh, the United Methodist Church did. Now, this, I'm, we're not talking about the AME Church, now we're talking about the predominantly white United Methodist Church, but they had a, what they called a colored uh, jurisdiction, uh, and they decided to break it up which looks like integration, but it, then it meant that uh, the black ministers, the black leaders of that um, uh, group, they no longer had the voice and standing in that denomination that they once had. And Martin Luther King says, um, sometimes segregation as a halfway step to freedom can be a good thing. Yes, I like integration, but I don't want to be integrated out of power. And that's really where the, 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 the black Adventists were. Um, plus, uh, when you look at the structure of the denomination, now you have uh, black conference presidents, and they go to annual council, and uh, they have a voice. Now it's an uphill struggle for them. And, you know, it, it's not like this was just overnight that they, they got the recognition that uh, was appropriate to them. But eventually, then, uh, this leads to opportunity uh, and a voice uh, uh, for them in the denomination uh, as a whole. And so, you know, uh, today I think we have four um, African-American Union Conference presidents. Um, and it, this, this is not to say, oh, okay, we've reached <laughs> a, a resolution of all these problems, and you know, but it, it does illustrate how, um, uh, even though it took a lot longer than it should have, and some things that might have been done along the way to hasten it were not done, um, th that the separate conference idea was also something that uh, meant. Uh, a voice and a say and a representation in the larger denominational structure, uh, gradually. Uh, yeah. And it seems like that's, I mean, it seems like it's very important to have that regardless, you know, to, to be able to say this is an interest group that we find that, that we want to invest in this community. It's marginalized. It's So it, it seems like that could very well be, you know, something people would use for the Hispanic community or different communities within Adventism that need a sense of representation and a focus on, on that particular mission field. And so it's, 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 a, it's one of those things where talking to, to uh, Dr. Rock and 
uh, some other people, just looking at that part of history where sometimes we see it as just a clean break of like, wow, you know, we, we got more, more segregation. Um, actually, it turns out to be, this was, you know, like you said with uh, Dr. King, you know, like you don't want to be integrated out of power, right? And so sometimes integration doesn't keep the interests of a, a special group in mind when other people are overseeing that community right, exactly. who don't have the same investment, right? Exactly, exactly, so. yeah, yeah. So what are some things that, from your, from your research, anything else that we didn't cover that you would like to <laughs> shed some light on? That, in, in broad strokes, I mean, I think that's, well, I, I guess I would say this. I do f- find that uh, this committee, um, change agents, as I'm calling them, I do find a measure of hope. They show that change is possible within. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a story that would make us think that uh, it's easy or that it's necessarily going to, 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 to fix things overnight. But again, here are these people who, from multiple standpoints, either had no standing or no voice or a very diminished one. Um, but they brought about something, even though that was not their specific goal, they were the principal driving force shaking up the leadership uh, to, to do something that uh, was a major uh, uh, advance uh, forward, uh, all things uh, considered. And um, so um, that, I, I think, is one reason why I was so interested in this and, and uh, wanted to look at it from, uh, from that standpoint. I hope this episode sparked an interest to find out more about the history of race and the church, as well as how structures can be developed to preserve the interest of minority groups within a majority structure. Recommended reading includes, once again, Louis C. Sheaf, Apostle to Black America by Dr. Douglas Morgan. Also, Protest in Progress by Dr. Calvin Rock. The Biography on James K. Humphrey by Dr. R. Clifford Jones and Seventh-day Adventists and the Civil Rights Movement by Dr. Samuel G. London. Please stay tuned for next week's episode as we continue a conversation about African-American education and the importance of exposing ourselves to various sociological lenses within institutions of higher learning. We want to thank the Adventist learning community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Dr. Douglas Morgan. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at Advent next.